0: Hello, this is Impact Ed, and I'm HD Chambers with A Leaf ISD. Thank you for joining this this session uh, of Impact Ed. I am joined today by uh, Mr. Scott McClellan, and for those in the Houston area, most people know Scott uh, with his role with HEB. And uh, and while we'll talk about some groceries, perhaps, but the, the the purpose of of having Scott here today is to have a conversation about what uh, he personally and the company in which he works for. Uh, how they have gotten themselves involved in education, you know the the why and the the, the specific issues and the things that are driving him uh, to spend as much of his personal and his business time uh, working with public ed across the greater Houston area. So, Scott, thank you for joining joining us and, and welcome, Daily ISD and Impact Ed.
1: Good to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: Absolutely. So, uh, we're, this is a conversation, and for those who are listening to this podcast in other parts <laughs> other parts of this country or other parts of the world. Uh, just to put it in perspective, uh, the the conversation that people in Houston will listen to will be from a different perspective because they many as I mentioned earlier, many have seen Scott uh, on television doing commercials and and marketing and branding for his for his company H E B. But Scott, if if you don't mind, if you could perhaps just give some context as to why you and how you have gotten into the education conversation in the greater Houston area. And whether that's a personal story or a professional story or a combination of both, I think it'd be good context for the other things we're going to talk about, because you are knowledgeable in certain areas of of education.
1: Well, it really is a combination of both. Uh, I grew up going to public school. My daughters went to public school, and I have four grandkids, and I'd like them to go to public school. And as I look at what I really point to as being one of the critical factors of my own success is that I grew up in public schools, and it's the diversity of kids that I went to school with that I think helped shape me, as opposed to having gone to an all-white private school where I didn't get the benefit of the richness of the diversity of the community that I grew up in. And I think that really helps as you get out into the business world where you can grow up experiencing what our country and our cities look like. You know, my dad, he grew up uh, in a home that didn't have electricity or running water, and went on to live a middle-class life. And um, I grew up there, and by uh, hard work and the grace of God and a good education, I've jumped a socioeconomic class myself. And if that's really the American dream. My dad lived it, I lived it, and you really want to see more people be able to achieve that. But unfortunately today, about 11% of kids have the ability to jump a socioeconomic class, and that's what our country really has been founded on. And really the pathway out of poverty, if you point to one thing, it's not the lottery, it's education. That's what gets you there. So that's the personal story of why I believe in it so much. Secondly, if you look at HEB, uh, we're a large privately held grocery chain, operate in Texas and northern Mexico. We have 112,000 employees who work for us. And I think if you talk to small kids, I've got four grandkids, they're like, what do you want to do when you grow up? Typically, work for a grocery store doesn't roll off their tongues, right? (laughs) Like, I want to be a policeman or an astronaut or a doctor. And so we end up with a lot of people working for us who um, end up working at retail. And I will say this. It's a great career where you can make a good income and make a real impact on people's lives. But it's not an aspirational career. And oftentimes, we get people who end up there who haven't gone to college. In fact, 70% of my store managers don't have a college degree. And a majority of the people who work for us haven't gone to two-year, four-year school. And when we were looking at our training manuals for our hourly employees a few years ago, what we found was that we had to change the literacy rate on our training manuals from an eighth-grade literacy level to a fifth-grade literacy level. And that really highlighted for us the fact that something was wrong in terms of the way in which we're educating kids And I have bricks and mortar on the ground in Texas. I'm not going to, you know, close my stores and move to another state. But if I'm in energy or if I'm in technology or if I'm in finance, I can go somewhere else. And more importantly for Texas, where we need jobs and the growth of jobs for our state to prosper is, why would I want to move to a state that can't provide a solid workforce? And so the future of our state, more than anything else, really revolves on the ability to educate our youth.
0: And- and And I think to exemplify that is the recent Amazon decisions.
1: Yeah, Yeah. I I think here in Houston that that was a big wake-up call for us because, you know, you refer to Houston as being the energy city. And I think over time we've realized that we need to diversify. And, of course, we have the largest medical center in the world that uh, employs well over 100,000 people. If you look at our third – at our port, it's the third largest port in the United States. Um, And it's certainly an important part of our overall economy. But to not to be in technology or in digital today, you're going to fall behind because that is the way in which the economy is moving. And so when Amazon – we didn't make it to round two. right? And so I think you're now seeing the city really begin to focus on the importance around technology. So I lived in San Antonio for 12 years before I moved to Houston 16 years ago. And I was always amazed, why does San Antonio have so many call centers? Like Why? And I came to realize when Toyota moved and put their manufacturing plant there, and they needed to hire 1,000 first-line managers, and they weren't able to source their first-line managers from people who lived in San Antonio. They had to import them from elsewhere, and that's because that's what the education system in San Antonio gave them. And so why it is Silicon Valley in Northern California? Because that's what the education system is able to provide, those types. Why is uh, the second Silicon Valley in Boston? Because of all the education uh, that occurs there. And so realizing that our ability to feed the needs of the business community is really a function of our ability to educate a workforce.
0: And I think, I think from an educator's perspective, and I don't know that we've ever in, in our profession have ever seen ourselves – as clearly as we do now, as being a provider to the workforce, you know, at first it was we're just going to get the students to graduate high school, and then it then it has become, and it's still becoming this. We not only do we need to get them through high school with the you know graduating graduating high school, but we need to get them into college, ready to go to college. Or now, and it used to be we wanted everybody to go to college. The whole system was set up, designed for that. It's just been in the last decade or so we've started having conversations about well, how do we how do we we K-12. How do we prepare students to be prepared to go into the workforce? So to your to your point, for your 112,000 employees at HEB, many of them having a high school diploma, but nothing else beyond that. Uh, We've just started working on that in, in in public ed, and particularly in Texas. And so you're in a facility right now. You're being, and people don't know this, listening to this, but you're in a facility in a recording studio right now in a school district that's designed for students specifically for the career paths they may want to take. That part of it, I, I, from your perspective, from the from your industry's perspective, do you see that as the I would assume yes, but would, how do you see that movement in K-12's policymaking to, to address what you just yeah, described? I th-
1: well, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, in its in its roughest sense, a school district is a manufacturing plant. And I don't mean to diminish what a school district does when I say that, but you take raw material, a child who is basically uneducated, and between K-12, through 12, you add value to that child by educating them and then putting them out the other end where they're either career ready or ready to go to two year or four year institution. But if you look at education over the course of the last four or five decades, is how much has the process changed in which we have educated kids? And I think what we're seeing now in the uh, building that we're in right now is a good example to say, hey, maybe all kids don't have to go to four year school. Now, what is true is that whereas in the 70s and the 80s, you could graduate from high school and get a blue collar job that paid a strong living wage, that's becoming increasingly more and more difficult. So you do need some sort of technical certificate. You do need a two-year degree or a four-year degree because that's where the jobs are going to go. In fact, you know they talk about uh, 65% of all jobs by 2020 of the new jobs are going to require some sort of two-year, four-year technical certificate. So I think folks are naive if they think, hey, if I get the high school diploma, I'm going to be okay. You aren't. Right. Going forward, because that's what folks are needing. Even at HEB, yeah, yeah. I said earlier, seventy percent of my store managers don't have a college degree, but seventy percent of my store managers under the age of thirty-five do, and there is the pig and the python change yep. that yep. that is occurring. So I think realizing that, hey, we have to change. I heard our um, uh, uh, TEA Commissioner Marath speak, and he said, "How many accredited computer science teachers do we have?" in the state of texas and we have 1200 school districts in the state of texas and i may be off by a couple dozen here but i think he said there was like less than 150
0: yeah that's that's about right
1: and so you say boy if if the future says it's about technology that number probably needs to go up
0: oh it does i've i've was a part of a a group a couple years ago that spent a lot of time uh, in mountain view california at at google Mm And we had an opportunity to just talk leadership and talk about education and talk about this very issue, particularly on the obviously the technology side. And they're begging, begging schools across the country to, to incentivize and to create more computer science opportunities, coding and all the, the things that, that, that goes into the to the technology uh, sector. And, and so districts, as I said earlier, we're we're reacting as quickly as, as we can uh, but to your to your issue or to your point about uh, we're manufacturing, I, I would agree with you. I, I would agree with you. I think that we have a little bit more intentionality, if there's a such word, about that now. We're trying to create a a, a pathway for every student, not just the student who's going to go to the four-year university, but every student, the little boy, the little girl, the young man, young lady that, that may not know what they want to do and they may get a job at HEB. I want them to at least come out of A-Leaf they may not know groceries but they know how to be coached and taught and they're going to show up to work on time and 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 all the things that you expect out of your employees so
1: yeah i think that is one thing it's you know you think about things that are uh, thank god in my job i never have had to do a calculus problem because if i did i'd be in big trouble yes sir you know but uh, there are things around common sense that oftentimes you can't take a class <laughs> in in school and those are soft skills that you certainly would like to teach people you know, I think one of the things, if you look back in time and you look back in the 60s and the 70s, that our population was certainly more uh, homogeneous then. Mm-hmm. If you look at the city of Houston in the, in the 60s, we were probably 65% Anglo, much smaller percent minority. And you look at where we are today, and we're a minority-based uh, city. And unfortunately, as we are minority-based, is that oftentimes poverty follows minorities. Not always, but oftentimes that's the case. And so to think, and and obviously with being Hispanic majority city, is that ESL numbers have risen also. And so that puts different challenges on how do we educate our kids. And so if you look at just the raw numbers is that, you know, one in 10 Latinos hold a bachelor's degree in Houston compared to one in two Anglos. If you look at... um, The black unemployment rate is twice that of the white unemployment race. And so for us to think that we can approach education the same way we did 20 or 30 years ago, given the changing demographics, we can't. Now, I would say, and I was talking to some people out in Los Angeles and in the inner city of Los Angeles, that they had made a decision that they just weren't going to give advanced placement tests because they didn't think kids could pass them. And they said, that's the craziest thing they'd ever heard. And so they went in and forced them to do it. And they found out that 15% of the kids passed advanced placement. Well, there's a direct correlation between taking advanced placement classes and going on to pursue secondary. And so realizing that, look, kids, regardless of where you are on the socioeconomic spectrum and one's ability to achieve, that those there's no correlation to that. It's just a question of how you help them. And what I would certainly say is it's tough to be poor. And as a result, kids who are poor may need some extra support to help them see what's possible in their lives and where they can go and may need some extra assistance to help get them over the hump. But just like you had someone in your life, I'm sure, who made a difference in you. For me, it was my fourth grade teacher who I wasn't a very good student and she made me be a good student, is um, kids who are poor need that same help and support. And why that's so critically important, if you look at what's your free and reduced lunch percent in in Italy? We're 85 to 86%. And if you look at HISD, it's over 70 there, is that if you look at the demographics within Houston, and I say this to business leaders all the time, is that it's not about their kids because their kids are going to be fine. But our kids are every kid who grows up in this area because if we can't help all kids get a two-year or a four-year degree – then our city and our state isn't going to move forward. You know, the governor has talked about this 60 by 30 plan where 60% of all kids will get a two-year or four-year degree by 2030. Well, we're currently lagging that goal by 20 years. So it's actually 60 by 50. And if that is the case, if we can't make up ground against this 60 by 30 goal, is we're going to lose jobs. And what will happen is the per capita income in our state will drop. And that has huge repercussions on things like our GDP, our tax revenue, our incarceration rate, the number of people who go on to welfare. And I think one of the things as Texans we take pride in is what a great state we live in. And I think what we have to take note of is, look, we're better than this. And if we help out each other and we help those who are less fortunate than ourselves get better, that ultimately it will create a rising tide and we will all win. But if we only look out for ourselves, those of us who have today, that ultimately we will have less because we don't help those who are around us.
0: Yeah, if we want to maintain this moniker of a great state or the city of Houston, you know, being Houston strong, then it starts and it ends with education.
1: Well, and I think for the state is given that we have 10 percent of all the students in the United States in the greater Houston area, then I think it's safe to say is as Houston goes and as Dallas goes, so goes our state. Well, and
0: 25 percent of every student in the state of Texas who's in a school, who's school aged is in the Houston area. Yeah, it's
1: amazing. It is. So
0: yeah. uh, I had Dr. Kleinberg with Rice University on here several weeks, uh, I don't know, five, six weeks ago. And it, he made a comment about and we've all heard him talk about this, but we have no choice. Houston has no choice. We, we, in other words, there is no swing and miss here. You either get it right or, or we, we we falter as a community and we falter as a state. Yes. Um, I wanted to segue a little bit of, of what you just described into um, some of the initiatives that you've been a part of in the city of Houston over the last five to six years. Uh, one of them, uh, and I'd like for you to spend a little bit of time talking about about it, is it, it was an organization called Early Matters. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you don't mind, just share, you know, how you got involved in that, and and what it is, and what it's morphed into today, uh, in your in your belief, uh, the the way in which you believe in it that it, that it has allowed you or incentivized you to st- to stick with it and stay a part of it.
1: Sure. Uh, well, it was probably six years ago that we got together and began to look at the educational um, status in Houston, and we said, "Boy, we need to step in and do something." And you know, we kind of looked at it from cradle to career and said that's a lot to take on all at once. Could we just break it into pieces and take on one piece at a time? And so we set a goal around third grade reading. And we said, if we could get all kids to read at grade level by the third grade, that if you can read at grade level by the third grade, then there's a four times less chance that you'll drop out of high school than kids who can't. I mean, kids who can't read in the third grade don't drop out in the fourth grade. But eventually what happens is that the the curriculum passes them by, they lose interest, and they'll drop out in the ninth grade or the tenth grade. And so we really set our initiatives on, like, from birth to third grade. And we made quite a bit of progress in terms of raising the awareness and focusing on uh, activities that would help uh, kids read at grade level. But it really became clear to us a couple years into it that you can't just stop at the third grade. And so we decided then to expand our initiative really all the way from cradle to the time kids get out into career, which is a much larger undertaking for us. And not to say we were going to stop any of the work that we did with third grade reading and pre-K and early child development and all the early initiatives that we were looking on, but we felt like we needed to tack on to that high school graduation, secondary persistence, teacher quality, kids graduating from uh, uh, two-year four-year institutions and begin to look at that. And so we morphed early matters into an organization called Good Reason Houston. Now, one of the things that's interesting is, and because we live in such a philanthropic city, is there are probably a couple hundred different organizations who all work in the educational field today that all have really the best interest of Houston at heart and want to make a difference for them. But if you put an umbrella over all of that and called it a corporation, you would say, boy, everybody is stepping on each other, and you have a lot of redundancy, and there's not really any coordination around what people are doing. And if it was a corporation, you would go in and reorganize it and say, look, you take this piece, you take this piece, and you could be much more efficient and much more effective in what you do. And so the way in which we set up Good Reason Houston was to say, look, let's be a community impact organization that begins to look at how can we make a real difference at each step along the way by working with uh, school districts, um, by working with the community, by working with all the different stakeholders that are interested in having kids do better. And not saying that we have to be the people who come up with the initiatives because a number of the initiatives may already be in play. We just need to add velocity and power to them. And so as we've gotten off the ground, there are really three different areas that we've taken on initially. One is would be around pre-K enrollment, because we do know that if kids enroll in pre-K, that uh, it is going to help them an awful lot in terms of success as they get into elementary school. We found through research that we've done that there are about 14,500 kids who qualify for free pre-K, who aren't currently enrolled. And you qualify for free pre-K if your family earns less than 150% of the federal poverty level, if uh, English is a second language, if you're a child of uh, active military, if you're a foster kid, and there may be a couple of other things. But there are a large number of kids who don't enroll. But what's interesting today is every school district runs their own campaign for pre-K enrollment. And so it's disjointed. And so what we did is we said to all the school districts in not just the greater Houston area, but all of southeast Texas, we said, why don't we just do it all on the same week? And then why don't we run a marketing campaign to try to get everyone uh, focused on at the same time? We'll get the TV stations to run PSAs. I'll get the Houston Astros to do a TV ad around it, using my monies from HEB to film the ad. And we'll try to really get these kids involved and enrolled. So that's one step. The second would be is over time is let's get more three-year-olds because if one year of pre-K is good, two years of pre-K is better. I have four grandkids. All four of them started pre-K before they hit the age of two and it makes a huge difference in their verbal and socialization skills the earlier you can start, ki- start kids in pre-K. And my grandkids started in privately, but if you look at public school, that there is an ability for them to go to, p- to public uh, uh, pre-K starting at age 3. So that's the first area that we looked at. Second area we looked at was secondary persistence. So it's interesting if you look at 86% of kids graduate from high school. Unfortunately, only about 20% of them are deemed college-ready, And when you say, well, how is that distinction made? It's off of ACT, SAT scores and how they score on that. Yet 54% of kids do go on to matriculate into a two-year or four-year school, which says, gee, a number of them are going to have to go through uh, some sort of remediation to get them caught up. But what we do know is that there are plenty of kids that may not go on into two-year, four-year school because they just can't flat afford it. And so we have found that there's a direct correlation between kids applying for Pell Grants. And if you apply for a Pell Grant, then you're able to go to school for free. And the form that you fill out is a FAFSA form. We were talking to a friend of ours up in Dallas, and he was looking at different schools and their ability to get kids in schools to fill out this FAFSA form to get a Pell Grant. And he found that a school had about a 25% higher rate of completion on these FAFSA forms than any other school. So they went and they visited with the principal and they said, why is your school so much better? And he said, the principal said, oh, well, we just make that part of the curriculum for the economics class. And so, I mean, what a simple (laughs) idea, right? It's not like this is rocket science. (laughs) science. And so one of the things we're looking at here is like how do we get more kids to fill out the Pell Grant form so that they will go to two-year, four-year school because if we can get them in, then there's a good chance. And and whether it's Lone Star or San Jack or HCC – They all have programs that are focused in particular on kids at risk to help them stay enrolled and push them through the pipeline. So we think that's critical. Then the third area that we're focused on is teacher quality. Because uh, as I had mentioned earlier, look, we all had a teacher in our life that made a big difference. After our parents, for me, you know, the second person that had the biggest impact was my fourth grade teacher. And in large part, I wouldn't be here today if it hadn't been for her. And I didn't like her because she wasn't very nice to me, but she (laughs) held me accountable and made me a better student. And we've all had those kinds of people. But if you think about when I grew up, I'm 61 years old, for a woman, you could be a teacher or a nurse or a bank teller. But for all the right reasons, the glass ceiling has been blown off and there are a lot more career opportunities for women. And over time, what has happened is that being a teacher has become less sexy. And what we really need to do is make this a revered position that people want to go into because there isn't a more important job that is out there in fact in Japan they actually tie the hay rating of jobs for teachers to be equivalent to that of being an engineer yeah, exactly and it's not the starting pay for teacher because the starting pay is okay but if after 10 or 15 years you cap out at 76000 you're pushed to go into administration. Mm-hmm. And why shouldn't we pay a teacher $100,000? And I'm exactly. so excited to hear that Governor Abbott is mm-hmm. now coming around to that. Yep. Tory's open to considering that teachers could earn $100,000 per year because you think about the number of lives that they can impact and then the impact that could have on our economy and our workforce and the trickle-down effect is really significant.
0: One of one of the things that, that I would – add to that is you know this last week we had Dr. Bob McPherson and Dr. Elizabeth Phils Powell, Bob with the University of Houston mm-hmm. Dean of College of Education. And we were talking about this very subject. While in that conversation, we kind of dawned on me about this teacher shortage of which is a real thing. Yes that's a real that's a real thing. I, I made a comment that across the state of Texas today 25 percent of every school's classrooms are being filled by a non-certified teacher. Some higher than others. That's lower than, and it's it's lower in a leaf, but in other districts, it's high. This this whole salary conversation. There are some teachers who are getting out to go into the private sector to make more money, mm-hmm. but there's other good quality teachers who are going into into administration but to make more money. We're doing it to our own self. I mean, our, the entire system is incentivizing a a teacher in order to make a a better livable wage to go into in, to, to move up the the corporate ladder, if you will. Yes. And so, yes, I. I completely agree with the governor and with others in, in policy making positions that anything we can do to create a system that allows teachers to have the opportunity to make that kind of money, whether it's a hundred thousand or ninety thousand or one hundred and ten thousand, whatever it is, there's and it, and it has to be based on some some quality metrics. But until we do that, Scott, I, I can tell you from the from my vantage point, we're we're gonna get into a worse and worse situation with with the, the very foundational issue of students coming to you guys unprepared. You having to make adjustments to a standard a reading test that you use to, for your hiring process. Until we get quality teachers in there, until we pay them, we're going to continue to struggle.
1: Well, to draw an analogy uh, from baseball, your best baseball players don't always make your best managers. Which is the same to say about teachers is that if your best teachers are going into administration they may or may not be right. your best administrators but what we do know is they were your best teachers that we do and know So that. for many of them you may want to simply have them make the biggest difference possible in the classroom and that may be where they are in fact the happiest you know and you talk for a minute about alt cert and there are certainly great teachers that come out of an alternate alternative certification process and you can point to many of them however i would say Uh, My own daughter, who was a teacher for eight years before she became a stay-at-home mom, she would say that it wasn't until she went through the student teaching process that she understood and learned the distinction between being liked and being respected. And her uh, student teaching process was rough because she wanted to be liked. And it was only at the end of that when she realized how much more important it was to be respected and she gained that distinction that she was then able to become an effective teacher. And when you don't have that student teaching, I think you learn an awful lot on the on the job that you don't get through the alt-cert process. And so um, certainly there are people who can make that jump, but there is something to be said for have going through the student teaching. And um, so the importance of attracting and making the job of teaching one that people want to aspire to do. And when you go through and actually when you look at data that is collected from other countries whether it's Finland in particular right. which ranks second or third in the world in terms of the quality of their education and you look at why what what can you point to is is it length of school day is it teacher to student ratio you know, the one number that you can point to is that the teachers feel valued and they feel respected and it is a job that is appreciated by the students and the parents and as a result, it attracts high-quality and high-caliber people into that profession.
0: Yeah, and, and part of the being valued and being respected is compensating them. Yes. You know, it's not the only thing, but it's a part of it. Yeah. it it's a big part of it. And um, so, yeah, I, so the, the three issues that you just talked about with good reason, the, the early childhood, the pre-K, and <clears throat> excuse me, what happens to them after they leave us in high school, and then, then obviously the, the employees, the teachers that are preparing them, spend just a second on the, on the pre-K when when early matters began, mm-hmm. uh, you, you kept referring to we. We did this. Talk a little bit about the early matters, you know, not the individuals, but, but the types of people, the types of skills and the types of professions that were represented in this group so that people can have a feeling that this is not a, this is not Scott McClellan running with a bunch of educators in the room telling him how to, you know, what we think and what we don't think. I'm, I found it because ex- I was a part of it. Yes. It, I, but I was extremely impressed with the diversity of the types of people that were in the room. It
1: really was amazing. I mean, at first, the group was um, small and contentious. Like, mm-hmm. you, you know, <laughs> why are all these people wanting to, you know, get together yep. and tread on my space? I'm exactly. an expert here. And, you know, we did have, obviously, educators. But then we had people from the business community. We had people from um, from private learning centers that came. We had Susan Landry. Uh, from uh, TLI, uh, Texas Learning Institute, who's one of the you know, foremost thinkers in terms of early education. We had virtually every, every not-for-profit that was in early education that was in the room. And every meeting, like our first meeting, had 20 people. You know a meeting is getting big when you eventually have to put microphones in the room. But I think <laughs> at one point, we had like 80 people in the room. Right. And I think what was compelling was it went from being kind of an education-directed effort to it was a community effort where you could see buy-in from the community that said, this is important, and you can't begin to address education issues when kids are a junior or senior in high school because you waited too long. You gotta start further down the pipeline when kids are malleable and 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 with the input, go back to the manufacturing uh, um, plant mm-hmm. analogy that I drew, start early on with the raw material so that you can get a better product when you get to the other end. And that's what we started at. And but we realized that you can't stop at the third grade. You got to push it all the way through, and that looking at things like teacher quality and secondary persistence are equally as important as looking at pre-K. And uh, as a result, and the woman that we hired to head this up um, started. Uh, well, she was the second leader for Teach for America in Dallas, and then went to Harvard to get her uh, her uh, MBA. And then uh, ended up marrying a guy in Houston, and so she needed to move to Houston, and it was really fortuitous for us because she's a big strategic thinker and is well-connected in the education world. And what we've really talked about is, look, how do we get 60 – as you begin to look at how do we create better schools is how do we create 65,000 better seats in in public schools throughout Houston by – you know, attracting investment that we can put against the kinds of things that we talk about, better pre-K, better teachers, different ways about going and doing things than what we've done before and saying is that the status quo today, when you look at um, uh, the number of failing schools that we have in the greater Houston area, um, the number of kids who don't have access to going to an A and B school is we need to raise that and we need to make it better so that we can have the kind of output that can allow our city and our state to be great.
0: I would I would hope people listening to this, particularly those people that are in the Houston area, would, if you're not aware of of the efforts that Good Reason Houston is putting forth, and which Early Matters is a part of Good Reason Houston, um, that you would you would do some research, and uh, if you're in a in a industry sector that's not aware of it, um, research it, and 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 if you feel if you feel needed, um, you know, getting involved and in helping is a, because this is a community crisis, and I don't you know crisis. Crisis is, that's a term that's thrown around a lot, but I would uh, I would agree with you that if we don't get and, and others if we don't get this right with and starting at early ages, uh, we're all going to suffer. we we are our kids, your grandchildren, my grandchildren. We're all going to suffer.
1: Um, I mean, it's yeah, it's it's not a crisis like a hurricane, but we can't kick the can down the road. And at some point in time, as a community, we have to make a decision that we're going to take a stand, and. Um, For those of us who live in Houston, we love it here. And as Texans, and in particular as Houstonians, we tend to be very optimistic and look on the bright side of how good our city is and the Texas spirit of all the things we can do. But sometimes you have to take your rose-colored glasses off and say there are things that we need to do. And And this is not an expense when you begin to look at education. And frankly, when you look at Austin and you look at public school finance, that this is not an expense, this is an investment. And it's no different than when you're in business is that sometimes you have to replace the roof. You have to replace the air conditioning unit. You have to go through and do a remodel in the supermarket business on your store so that it can perform better in the future and longer into the future. And that's what we're talking about here. So this isn't like, like a hurricane where a disaster comes and you react to it. But this will be, we will wake up one day and wonder, gee, why did Fortune 500 companies leave? Mm -hmm. And why is Texas not the leader in so many things like we were in the past? And I think the epicenter of that, frankly, will be Houston. And the reason for that is our greatest strength, our diversity, could be our greatest liability. And that lies in the fact is that out out of our diversity is the challenge of economic inequality. And out of the economic inequality, says is we have to push extra hard to teach every student and give them the opportunities to succeed in life, because to earn a living wage, you've got to do it through education.
0: Yep, it's always been that way, and it always will be. That's right. There is no there is no secret to it. Um, I want to I want to kind of wrap this up and close it with uh, with the topic that that goes back, and I want to tie this in with HEB and and with uh, what your company has done uh, to recognize good teaching mm-hmm. and quality teaching, and, and and if you don't mind, just talk a little bit about about that, about the HEB awards and, and, sure. and what you guys do. But I also want to follow that up with how, how can we leverage things like that to even to improve this uh, this notion of teacher preparedness, this teacher retention. Uh, because you're, you're you, obviously you're one company doing a lot of things. Uh, and so talk about that just a little bit, if you don't mind. Sure.
1: Well, I mean, I'm fortunate to work for a company, and while we sell groceries, I, I think our real business is trying to improve the quality of life for people who live in Texas. And if Texas can improve and succeed, then more people will live here, and the people who live here will have a better life, and they'll buy more groceries. So that's kind of the way we look at it, right? <laughs> so, we, yes, we sell groceries, but there's kind of a bigger game that we play. Yeah. And I work for a man who's a great humanitarian. His name is Charles Butt. And along with running a grocery chain, is he believes a lot in public education, and he puts his money where his mouth is. And one of the things that we do every year is we celebrate the great teachers in our state of public schools, and it's called Excellence in Education. We've been doing this for, I don't know, 15 or 20 years, where teachers are nominated throughout the state, and we give out about $700,000 in award money on one night every year, and it's like the Academy Awards for Teachers. It's the largest single-money giveaway to teachers and school districts, and principals, in early education, and it's just a way to recognize, and I'll tell you, if you're ever having a bad day and you go to this, it makes you feel so good at how committed and how outstanding so many teachers are in the state. But frankly, we just we we scratch the surface on how many good teachers there are because we give out about 50 prizes that night. Well, 2000 teachers are nominated. 200 of them get to the finals. I think we give them all $1000 and then the finalists can earn 5000, 10000 or $25000. The top school district gets 150 um, but it's a way to recognize folks for what they do. And what's amazing is many of these teachers will take the stipend prize that they give and just donate it back to their schools to, to invest back in the students. And that's what really blows your mind is these teachers who don't earn a lot of money anyway just care about the kids that they're working with. So that's one thing that we do. The second thing that Charles Butt did is that he took $100 million of his own money And he's starting an institute called the Holdsworth Institute that focuses on training and developing great principals because his belief is that the key to success in any school is to have a great principal because they set the standard and they set this culture for everyone else in that school. And so uh, they're now training uh, principals and superintendents from around the state uh, through a two-year training program designed to make a difference. And so as I said, he's an amazing person and has put his own money where his mouth is to try to change the trajectory of public school education within our state. And all that to be said is that, look, if we can make a difference in the quality of public school education, because, you know, almost 90% of all kids in Texas go to public schools, which is not to say that charter schools don't make a difference because they do, but you could triple the number of charter schools in the state, and they still aren't going to make a dent in the total number of students that are that are educated in public schools so you've got to start with public schools and that's where it's absolutely critical that we're able to make a difference because the tentacles and the reach of the public schools go so deep and look at every kid in socioeconomic status throughout the state
0: I, I, thank you for for going into that I, I just want to from from the educator's perspective when given the opportunity to thank HEB and and obviously Charles and his his unwavering support, both financially and in in other ways, in which he supports what we're attempting to do, particularly the teacher.
1: Well, I'm lucky to work for him, but we're all lucky to have him as part of our state and his uh, uh, his charitable outlook and willingness to share um, uh, the fruits of his labor with trying to make our state better.
0: Yep, that's if if everyone had that same perspective, we'd be we'd all be a lot better off. The uh, I, we'll wrap it up, and and uh, Scott, if there's if there's uh, Any lasting comments you'd like to make regarding Houston? You know, you and I both have been in enough conversations and enough meetings talking about the workforce. And uh, next week, I'm going to be visiting with uh, Mr. Bob Harvey and Mr. Peter Beard with the Greater Houston Partnership about this very topic. But um, as we sit here today and as your involvement has, has, uh, your participation in what's going on over the last, I don't know, decade, I don't want to sell you short on how long you've been working on this, but. Uh, how do you see the landscape? Are we are – we, are, and I'm talking about the city of Houston, the Houston region. Are we poised to have confidence that we can address some of the issues? Where are the, the shortcomings?
1: Uh, I, I think – well, um, I kind of break the, uh, the city down into two pieces is that you've got you know, the, the big school district, HISD, right now that is faced with some big governance issues. Correct. That I think makes everyone very nervous at this point. And then I think you have the surrounding districts that, while challenged uh, from a from – a perf- many of them challenged from a performance standpoint, have good leadership and are headed in the right direction and just need continued support. So I think you kind of got a bifurcation of issues, one surrounding the governance of HISD that needs to be dealt with. And then you look at uh, the surrounding districts that you know, just need support. And I think when you talk to Bob next year, uh, next week, because uh, he and I, I'm going to be the incoming chair of the Greater Houston Partnership, is that you'll hear from him that there's not a stronger priority within the business community as represented by the Greater Houston Partnership than the importance of education, both in terms of what we work on here locally, but also in terms of our lobbying in, in Austin and uh, needing to get the legislature to support public schools with better funding and better support than what they've done in the past. So uh, H.E. I thank you for all that you do. And, uh, you know, it's it's a grind every day to push forward for kids. And some days you move the ball forward a lot, and some days you don't, and some days you take a step back. But it's that long-term view that we just have to continue to push and not lose the end game because at the end of the day, it's about the kids and their ability to be able to move forward with a great life much like so many of us have had the opportunity to have, and here's a chance for all of us in Houston to be able to try to pay it forward and leave the place, our city, a little bit better than how we found it.
0: Scott, we'll end it on that. Thank you very much uh, for joining us. Again, this has been Scott McClellan with HEB, and you've been listening to Impact Ed. I'm H.D. Chambers with a ISD, and join us for our next episode of impact ed with mr bob harvey and mr peter beard with the greater houston partnership where we will talk about the future of the greater houston area as it relates to the workforce thank you